0: Good Friday and Easter link together Divine Grace and Divine Judgment. This will be this morning and Easter Sunday morning. And the text we're going to be looking at is Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31. So for a cup of coffee a day at Tim's or 40 bucks, three lattes at Starbucks, (laughs) you can... Acts 17, 30, and 31. These are huge verses. The times of ignorance... That's an interesting phrase right there. God overlooked. But now, this is a different time. He commands... Not recommends. Commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? He's going to tell us. That's that word right there. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance. It's like proof. Proof to all by doing something. And this relates to Easter. By raising him from the dead. Let's pray. What a marvelous text that marks a turning point. A breaking point in all of history where something new and something different has happened that changes everything forever and ever. That's what we're wrapping our little minds around. We will not think of anything bigger this year than this text. Make us ready for it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In so many ways, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central piece of the entire Christian faith. Of course, this is Good Friday, and I want to try and show a link But when you look at some of the things the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus, you'll see, here's a few of them. The resurrection of Jesus completes the saving work of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Don't look at that text yet. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith faith is futile. Two things. Your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Not just you still occasionally sin. That's not what this text is saying. You're in your sins. You are still locked in. Your your sinfulness is what defines you. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a very significant verse. I mean it tells us perhaps surprisingly... ...if you aren't ready for it... ...that Christ's death on the cross unaccompanied by his resurrection... let me say something that might shock you. See that cross on the wall? Christ's death on the cross... apart from his resurrection... accomplishes nothing. Nothing. Just a poor man who died. Let that sink in for a minute. The resurrection... and if Christ has not been raised... First Corinthians 15:17 your your faith is futile believe all you want paul says you're not changing anything by just wishing your faith is futile and you're still in your sins so the resurrection completes the work of redemption so much so that paul says if christ isn't raised even though he died on the cross we're still in our sins Stay with that thought just for a second more. Because I think we, we, we prattle off some of these things like religious slogans... ...without actually looking at what we're talking about. Finish this sentence for me. You probably know it. The wages of sin is... There we go. We all know it. If death isn't conquered... ...through Christ's resurrection... ...then sin isn't atoned. In other words... ...it's the resurrection of Jesus... ...abolishing the penalty of death... ...that gives... ...visible proof... ...of forgiveness... ...realized. I'll tell you why we need it. We need it because you can't see divine forgiveness... We confess Christ. We claim forgiveness. I can't show it to you. You can't look at it. Forgiveness is invisible. We sang this morning, debt is paid, paid in full. How do you know? I hope so. You can't verify forgiveness apart from Christ's resurrection, defeating the wages of sin in death. We certainly don't always feel forgiven. You'll certainly encounter people of other religions and other ideologies who also claim divine forgiveness. We aren't the only ones who claim it. How How will we decide Where shall we look for some kind of visible demonstration... ...we're on the right track looking to Jesus for our pardon? And the Bible has only one answer to that question. It says this. Find someone else who conquered death. Find someone else who rose from the grave... ...defeating the wages of sin. That's how you know about your forgiveness... It's the resurrection of Jesus from the grave that verifies my standing in grace and pardon. So the resurrection of Jesus completes redemption and demonstrates the forgiveness that I need so desperately. Secondly, Christ's resurrection guarantees our own resurrection from the dead when Jesus comes again. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. What glorious words of hope, eh? How those words have sustained countless Christians. Through through sickness, through persecution, through despair, through martyrdom. Christ's resurrection from the dead is, is just clearly set out by Paul as uh, the first part, the first part of a larger whole event. Eternal resurrected life," says Paul, is all of one harvest. It's already in process with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the rest is going to follow. So there's some wonderful truths about the resurrection. But there's another one. Today I want to consider another significant truth... ...tied to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And it's not one we commonly study during the Easter season... ...which is surprising because it's so central... ...to the teaching of the cross and resurrection in the New Testament. Paul says to miss this is a horrible oversight... Paul says that Father God himself has forever linked the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He's linked that to another event still in the future besides your resurrection and mine. Something else. Paul says that this other future event is one that has relevance for everyone who has ever breathed. ...a breath on planet Earth. So, so, the resurrection of Jesus has significance far beyond... ...what our world would consider a Christian perspective... ...a saving perspective. There's something tied to the resurrection of Jesus... ...that affects everyone... ...the way weather affects everyone... ...or pollution affects everyone. So, first... There's the historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that the grave in which he was buried truly was empty three days later. The fact that Jesus was seen risen and alive in his body after he was crucified. So the resurrection actually happened. And then second, there's this message of hope that fills all of our hearts... This risen Christ is now preparing a place for us. John 14, 3, you don't have this reference. I was just plugged this in this morning as I was thinking, but you saw me scribbling there. Well, Jesus says, And, and if, I, if I go, if I go, that's his ascension, his leaving. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's his second coming, that's his return. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You think about it. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we would have no ascension of Jesus. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no actual going away, the way the disciples saw him rise. And if he didn't go away, he certainly can't come again. And if he doesn't come again, there's no eternal reunion with him. I will come again. Church, everybody gets this mixed up. Let me make it as clear as I can. The blessed hope of the Christian is not that when I die, I will go to be with Jesus, that's not untrue. Absent from the body. Present with the Lord. But the blessed hope is. Not my dying and going to be with him. The blessed hope is. His coming here. A resurrected body. And a new creation. A new heaven and a new earth. This is what we're waiting for. My Blessed hope for my uh, departed father, Michael, isn't that he has some existence with Jesus now. That's precious, and it's true. The hope is his body's coming out of the grave. When Jesus comes back at the second coming, that's the blessed hope. The Bible says that's the blessed hope. So we have this hope of being with Jesus after we die ...and even more completely... ...when he comes again. But there's a third factor... ...and this is what... ...we're about halfway done. There's this third factor... ...that the Apostle Paul... ...ties to the resurrection of Jesus Christ... ...that hasn't anything just to do... ...with those who believe in Jesus... ...or those who honor him as Lord. There's something else that applies to everybody. The third factor... Christians and non Christians alike, and it's stated in our opening text from Acts 17. The resurrection of Jesus establishes him as the future judge of all mankind. He, 1730, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Father has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. The assurance is... ...there is a day of judgment. And the assurance that God has provided is... ...by raising him from the dead. Jesus Christ... ...God the Son... ...is the... ...selected future judge... ...of everyone who has ever lived. Christians... ...Jews... ...Muslims... Atheists, agnostics, passionate, indifferent, lovers of God, haters of God, followers of Christ, rejectors of Christ. He's appointed someone to judge. And this is established, proven, made visible by the resurrection of God the Son from the grave. So, so in his mercy, his preparing mercy... The Father has made this future event visible and provable. It's a future event, the judgment. But he's made it provable in a historic event. The resurrection of Jesus. Now there are two questions that I want to look at... ...that arise out of this tremendous statement made by the Apostle Paul. First, why is Jesus the one to judge the world... That's the question we're going to consider Good Friday right now. Why not one of the other members of the Trinity? Why not Father God? Why not the Holy Spirit? Why is is Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one to whom judgment is committed? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the second question that we'll look at on Easter Sunday morning... What's the significance of that fact... What does it mean to us that God is going to judge the world by his son, Jesus Christ? So, so what are we all called upon to do that is different now that Jesus Christ is risen and designated as the judge of the whole world? How does that change things in this world? How does this event affect all people of all religions... ...or of no religion at all. What difference does it make? So question number one. Why is Jesus Christ, God the Son... ...the appointed future judge of the world? Let me go through just some scriptural reasons. A, Christ is appointed our judge... ...because he became one of us... ...and died for our sins. There's a place in John's gospel... ...where Jesus actually tells us... ...why he is the one who will judge the world. It's very interesting. It's in John... Chapter 5, 26, 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why Jesus? Well, because... And then this title. He is the Son of Man. The reason that the Father has entrusted judgment to the Son... ...is because he's the Son of Man. There's there's no phrase used by Jesus more frequently... ...to refer to his incarnate state... ...his dwelling among us in human flesh... ...than that title, Son of Man. It's his favorite title. Father God grants the role of judge to God the Son, because the Son is permanently one of us in a way the Father and the Holy Spirit are not. That is really deep theology. Paul makes the same point in, in this morning's text. If you look at Acts 17, 31, because he fixed a day... On which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. See, by a man. That's not accidental, that term. Whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By a man. Unless you think this is, Pastor Don, like it's Good Friday. Lighten up. Like why are you working us so hard with all this stuff? I want you to think for a minute about the profound... Church, the profound consolation this should have on your heart. The one who came in human flesh. The one who spilled his blood... To redeem you. That's the one... Who will be the judge. See... If your judge is your enemy, you're in deep trouble. If your judge died for you, that's good news indeed. That's good news indeed. Our judge is our intercessor. He's the one who intercedes before the Father for us right now. The one who decrees our eternal state is the one who poured out his mercy and life and grace. And so you you behold the wisdom and the goodness of Father God in this. It's God's way of magnifying his grace before this whole world. I need not doubt receiving from Jesus at the judgment that which he gave his life to secure on my behalf. Do you get it? B, Christ is appointed our judge as a suitable result of his suffering and humiliation. Nobody describes this better than the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every other name. Okay, So that, now there's the explanation. Why? Why did all this happen? So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He'll be the judge. In heaven and on earth This is interesting. Under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Father God designs that Jesus Christ, who appeared in such lowly, humble circumstances here on earth, the one who had no place to lay his head, the one who was despised and rejected by men, Father God has designed it that every knee will bow and confess his greatness and his lordship. We sang, you have no rival, you have no equal. I know, I know what the writer meant. It's a great song. I love it. Truth be told, there's lots of rivals. Not legitimate ones. We create rivals every day. All sorts of things we worship, don't we? All sorts of things we give our hearts to. We create rivals for Jesus all the time. But the day will come where there will be no rivals. No imagined rivals. No idols. No competitors for our worship. It won't necessarily be a saving confession for all who kneel. We know, for example, that demonic creatures in the realms under the earth... They're not going to be saved. But all will be compelled to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. So Paul's point is crystal clear. This will not be the baby in the manger anymore. This will not be Jesus pierced and bleeding on the cross. This will be a Jesus with a name above every other name. And he will will shine with authority and brightness and greatness and glory. Thirdly... Jesus Christ is appointed judge so that he might put all enemies under his feet. I'll wrap up with this. The Bible says there's something both wonderful and terrifying that is going to happen but hasn't happened yet. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power, and he must reign, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That phrase. So, we, we don't yet live in a world where all Christ's enemies are under his feet. You can see that. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, that's now, okay? Right here. We don't see everything in subjection to him. So the writer of Hebrews says, there's a work... ...still to be done with Christ's enemies. That's what it says. We, we don't see all the enemies defeated. I buried a five-year-old Monday. There is yet a work to be done with Christ's enemies. The Bible says the last enemy is death itself. Death is the last enemy. It's not the only enemy... There are many enemies that oppose Jesus Christ in this present age. There are so many things that cause us to long for a victory that's just initiated but it's not completed. And we we feel the tension in that, the hurt in that. But listen. Because the resurrected body of Jesus... ...right now... The resurrected body of Jesus is the first and only tangible portion of the coming new creation. You see, there's going to be a day, the Bible says, when there's... It's not just floating off to heaven, sitting on clouds and playing harps with cream cheese. What the Bible says is, is big, Church. ...really big. It says... ...there's going to be a brand new creation. The story of the Bible... ...the story of the Bible moves from... ...old creation... ...redeemed creation... ...new creation. That's your Bible in a nutshell. Old creation... ...decreation in the fall... ...redeemed creation, new creation, okay? New heaven, new earth. A real place, real bodies, a brand new, a creation that is just as actual as the original creation. Not a dreamland. There's going to be a brand new creation. How do we know that? Well, there's one place one tiny speck, one little dot where the new creation has already started. Where that is, is the resurrected body of Jesus. That's the first pinpoint and proof of a totally new creation to come. Now think about that. Because his resurrected body is right now the first and only tangible portion of the coming new creation... ...it is fitting, it is fitting that Christ be the one to stamp out the last enemy in the old creation. Do you get it? Jesus is appointed judge so he can officially pass sentence on all his enemies, all who reject him, all who oppose his grace and redemption, all who shun his lordship. No one has to submit to Jesus right now. People can go their own way. But one day, Father God will make it appropriate that the Son bring all enemies under his feet. In other words, just as God's grace is magnified in appointing him to be the Savior and Judge of the Redeemed... God's justice is magnified in having Jesus in his offer of redemption to the whole world. Jesus will be the judge of those who have rejected that saving grace. Christ's enemies will be judged by the very one through whom they could have been saved. And so their guilt is doubly magnified. The closing application... Of this is Good Friday, is, it's always good from God's end. In that merciful, pardoning grace is made available to absolutely everyone. And you just be, behold the love of our God. But Good Friday, or the truth revealed on Good Friday, is only good for those who accept. And act upon its reliability. Redeeming truth must be treasured. Jesus said kingdom truth must be treasured. Like finding gold in the ground. In one of his parables. Make it your own. Rejoice in it. Live by it. Receive it. Honor it. Trust in it. Rely upon it. The same grace that is wondrously good to receive is frighteningly terrifying to reject Good Friday and Easter affect every person on the planet it's just some know about it and some don't